Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 180. So glad you could join me. Today's guest is uh, Michael Dylan Welch. So if you, if you need to know anything about haiku, uh, it's a great episode for you. We're going to learn all about haiku and related forms and all the things that Michael does, which are very fascinating. We also have a Poets Respond guest coming up in the first couple minutes, too. Before we begin, though, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. Uh, we just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button and share, and make sure you're subscribed, ring the bell for notifications, leave reviews on iTunes or Spotify or anywhere else you're listening to this right now that helps a lot spread poetry around the internet, and that's what we want to do. Um, that's the only reason we do this, is to share poetry, because we think poetry is valuable, and I know you do too. Um, so, like I said, our first guest is Amalejandro Aguirre with um, Samba du Suatera, the Sunday poem. And uh, here he is. Let's say hi to Alejandro. Hey, everybody. Hey, Tim. How's it going? Good. How you doing, Alejandro? It's great to see you. Yeah, nice seeing you, too. So uh, so do you want to explain about uh, what this poem was about that we're, uh, we featured on Sunday? It's a really interesting news story. I always love the sort of, you know, off-the-grid kind of news stories that you don't get a whole lot of attention. They're fun, especially when there's like a little bit of a science theme or a biology theme. I mean, this is one of those. So tell us what the uh, the story was about. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I wasn't that big of a science buff, but the story attracted me too. Uh, it was in the Times. There's a new study, supposedly, that the dolphins that help fishermen um, in Laguna, Brazil, to catch mullet fish live longer than other dolphins in the area. Mainly because, I mean, they get, it's it's a mutually beneficial relationship. They get some of the fish from the catch, and also they stay inside the cove, which um, puts them away from some of the natural predators that other dolphins would face. And that somewhat reminded me of an experience I had recently. I went to a wedding, um, one of those big weddings that you see a lot of family members from around the country that you haven't seen in a long time. And I had a chance to meet my cousin's wife, um, who is also from Brazil. And it turns out I am no good at dancing samba, (laughs) Uh, even though she tried to teach me. Yeah, well, it's a really interesting story. It reminded me of... um... There's another story, the the law of the tongue. Have you heard that? There's a us in Australia. There is this history where, for I think like a hundred years, there was this whole pot of uh, orca. They would hunt baleen whales and help the fishermen hunt. And so they would like trap a baleen whale in the little inlet, and then they'd come and like bang their tail on the water to let the fishermen know that it was there. And then the fishermen go out and harpoon it, and then for the whale oil, and then the uh, the orcas would um would get the tongue as a payment. And so they got sort of a cheap tongue, like an easy-to-catch tongue. They didn't have to, like, chew yeah. up the... Apparently, orcas die uh, uh, by when their teeth run out. So if they get to uh, have somebody che- cut up the the, dolph- or the whale a little bit, they live a lot longer. And so they got sort of an easy meal at their favorite gourmet dish at the uh, same time as the fishermen got an easy whale trapped in the bay. And so it worked out for, like, 100 years, apparently. And, um, and a very fascinating thing, too, where the dolphins here, uh, bottlenose dolphins, I think they were, uh, we're helping fishermen um, pull in the uh, what kind of fish was it? Um, whatever fish it was. Fish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very fascinating. Yeah, great. Yeah, and then you took it in a really interesting place. There's such a musicality to this poem too. How did how did you know that you wanted to go in that direction? Like, how did the poem come to be the the form that that we see it here? Um, well, that that I don't know exactly. <laughs> and sometimes these things are a mystery to me. Um, but I would say I think from the beginning. Well, I've been toying around with a lot of um, 
ocean imagery, oceanic metaphors. Um, and I think it really came together somewhere towards the middle where I, I connected a, a, a sailing mast and and the, the sail itself to a piece of clothing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's when I really started getting direction into the poem. Yeah, a very cool one. Thanks for sharing it. Do you want to go ahead and read it now for everybody? I'd love to. Samba de Soteja. Light as swash, her soles left no trace in the sand. Sandals pelagic like caravels. She had tossed hers to the sea as if they had always belonged there, sailing on their cloth straps. And she here, barefoot, teaching samba. She spread her sarong from left to reach and laying it by my feet, said that I was not dancing if it puckered at my heels. I wasn't dancing. We tuned the radio to a Portuguese station, the host speaking too quickly for me. Listening, my instructor confessed that she missed being a fisherman's daughter and how wrong she was to dream of what lay beyond Laguna. Saudade, like dolphin clicks, felt against the shin with no net to cast. Yeah, beautiful poem. Thanks so much for sharing that. Once again, that was a Samba do Suatera, probably butchering that pronunciation. But um, Alejandro Aguirre, thanks so much for being a guest. Uh, really, a beautiful yes, poem. Thank you. It was one of those poems where you know, I was deciding between a, two, a few, and that was the one that just reading out loud felt the best reading out loud. I loved all the sounds of it. It's a great poem. Thanks so much for sharing it and joining us today. Thank you. Very honored. Yep. Take care. That was Alejandro Aguirre with um, Sunday's poem. And now we're going to take a quick break and go to uh, tonight's main guest, Michael Dillon Welch. So sit tight, and I will be right back in just a moment. And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. Uh, like I mentioned, today's guest is Michael Dillon Welch. Uh, Michael's written haiku since 1976. He's the past or current officer, director, or board member of the Haiku Society of America, Haiku Poets of Northern California, Haiku Northwest, Haiku North America, the Haiku Archives, the Tonka Society of America. I mean, you can just get the idea of what we're doing right now. Michael's the proprietor of the National Haiku Writing Month and runs an extensive personal website devoted to mostly haikugraceguts.com, which you can find a whole lot of stuff that uh, Michael does. He's also the editor-publisher of uh, Press Here Haiku and Tonka Books since 1989. Um, you know, his books are all over the place. There's a whole bunch of books as well, um, anthologized everywhere. Um, he uh, has a poem in which was published in the back of 150 million U.S. postage stamps in 2012. He lives with his family in Ma uh, Shamamish, Washington. And here is Michael Dylan Wells. Hey, Michael, how you doing? Hello, thanks for having me, Tim. Yeah, it's um, such a pleasure to have you. It's uh, you know, I'm a fan of yours, and I've I've sent I've probably sent people to your website more often than any other poet, and we'll, we'll talk about why later. <laughs> but um, but uh, <laughs> let's before we talk about that and uh, all the great stuff you publish, there's just so much content there at GraceGuts.com, and and so much that you do and have been doing for decades. Uh, but let's start out with a poem. What do you want to read first? Well, I know you had um, Campbell McGrath on your uh, Rattlecast recently. Uh, Two weeks ago, was it? I'm not quite sure. Uh, I was actually a good, like, last summer. Yeah. Okay. Um, sometime recently, anyway. And um, I, um, Campbell McGrath was sort of a pandemic discovery for me, so I've been enjoying getting into his poems. And I created an erasure from one of his poems, 
And I'd like to start by reading that. Um, and this is using um, a page from a poem called Homage to Syntax. And uh, you can see the poem on the screen. I won't read it. I'll just skip to the, uh, the erasure of it. This is what I came up with. You know, I think we should read it just so people can, because uh, a lot of people are just listening. Do you want, and it's not too long. Do you want to just read it? Okay. All right. I'll read the, the original poem. This is, uh, this is the second page of two pages of the poem. Here, a new usuality, a new haze, new phobia, plea for erasure and ethics of stimulus, glyph, logos, the hyena, rebirth, salvific, here, a new catastrophe, a new poetics of disaster, a newly authenticated community of ruins. Glyph, deaf mute, sign and countersign. Glyph, our eternal union, emblem of paradise. Here, nothing. Here, gates of the city. Glyph, scent of clothes, something forced on immortality. Here, New triumphalism carved in sandstone. Name of a bird or tree or flower. Here. Name of a bird. Here. Tree. Flower. Tree. That might make more sense if you read the first page, too. Mm -hmm. But the homage to syntax, that idea, um, is sort of what he's getting at. And it's the word erasure in this poem that just, I couldn't resist trying an erasure of this poem. So this is what I came up with. Erasure, a new poetics of disaster. Death mute, nothing here, carved sand. Hmm. Which uh, sort of, I don't know, negative, downer. I don't know, something, it's not, it's, it's not happy. So I extended it, made it just erasure. Hmm. Yeah, very interesting. And I went erasure, further, yeah. erased the whole thing. And then I came to my senses and came up with this variation. A plea for erasure, stimulus, rebirth, a new poetics, authentic community, Eternal paradise, something immortal, a new name. So there's my playing around with uh, uh, Camel McGrath's homage to syntax, and it's not haiku, obviously. Um, I do a lot of longer poetry in addition, addition to haiku. Yeah, and so, so uh, I framed this all up and um, actually had this in a gallery uh, last year. Yeah, that's very cool. So for people who um, couldn't see and were only listening, that's uh, the each five items that that transference between um, uh, the first original page and then and then the four alternate versions is that evolves and changes. How often do you do erasures? Is that something that you've done frequently, Michael, or is that just a, you experimenting that one time and it's like a one-off project? Um, I would say I've done maybe ten of them, so not very often. Mm -hmm. um, either either with completely unpoetic texts, uh, like children's illustrations with, that have texts on them, um, where I try to take advantage of the illustration on the page to draw some fresh meaning. Um, 
Um, but it's just, it's fun. I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm there's some people who are really skilled at it. Just do some incredible stuff. Um, Mary Rufel comes to mind. Um, um, but yeah, uh, it's, it's not something I do a whole lot, but it's fun to try it out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, so you're most known for haiku and, and, uh, I've always been curious because I don't know the answer. Like, how did you end up getting into haiku? It mentions you've been writing haiku since 1976 in your bio there. Um, what was it that drew you to haiku originally, and, and why that versus other forms? What made that stand out as something that you were, were drawn to? Um, bit of a mystery. Um, my middle name really is Dylan. I was named after Dylan Thomas. I'm actually British uh, and grew up in England, Ghana, Australia, and Canada, and so on. But I uh, always had an awareness of Dylan Thomas, poetry my siblings didn't have. And even as a kid, I was writing poetry. Um, and here's a little embarrassing story about me. Um, in grade school, uh, we had a school-wide poetry contest. When they announced the winner, I think it was grade eight or something like that. They announced the winners. I won all three of the honorable mentions. <laughs> and I won third prize and second prize and first prize. I swept the entire thing, which is a kind of validation, I think, that it sort of gets you going. You know, you might be onto something here. Anyway, um, an awareness of poetry. And then I learned about haiku in high school and was, I would say, I was superficially taught, let's put it that way, as I think most people are when they encounter haiku in grade schools. Um, uh, but it, it appealed to me. And I also had closet interest in Taoism and Zen and would read about that and would encounter haiku in, the, in those contexts um, and gradually became more and more aware of it. And after first learning about haiku in high school, I wrote it regularly along with everything else that I wrote. And it wasn't special yet, but it was something I did regularly. And all of my haiku had titles, which Japanese haiku do not have. They were all rigidly 575, uh, and I had no awareness of any other targets that haiku um, benefit from. Um, but then I discovered um, Or Vandenhul's Haiku Anthology. The second edition was published in 1986, and I bought a copy in 1987. And um, I was startled by the fact that most of the poems did not follow a 575 pattern. In fact, I even counted them all, and I think it was 88.2% or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to in- internalize why. What were they aiming at that was haiku if it wasn't the syllable count? Um, and and loosely, you know, they're paying attention. They were paying attention to uh, seasonal reference or kigo or the two-part structure, which is equivalent to Japanese called the kireji or cutting word. It divides poem in two parts parts, objective sensory imagery, and a bunch of other targets that I knew nothing about uh, until I encountered that book. And a dramatic thing happened with my own haiku at that time, and I can trace this in my notebooks, sort of down to the day where my poems changed. Um, there, I shifted from thinking about form to thinking about content. Hmm. What was I saying rather than what bucket am I filling? And it, it radically improved my my haiku. And I sent my very first submission of haiku to Robert Spies of Modern Haiku, 1988. 
and got a crisp dollar bill for my very first acceptance back when you, the modern haiku used. And I still have that dollar bill. And again, it's another validation and still had much to learn and uh, still learning. And uh, more recent years, I know any of the essays and things that I've written are helping others learn as well. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I think the next stuff you wanted to read is haiku. Why don't we read a few of those? Um, the first snow. I think you have to pull it up on that on your uh, screen. Yes. Too. Yeah. Yeah. This is um, a set of some of my uh, better known haiku. And there are Japanese translations here by Emiko Miyashita, who is my translation partner. Um, my wife is Japanese, but I'm not fluent in Japanese. I need help. So whenever we've, whenever I've done projects, translation projects, it's always with Emiko. And this, uh, she's done some translations here that are, uh, for those who can see it on screen, you'll be able to see that. But those listening, you'll just have to imagine it. So this is First Snow, a set of uh, a dozen haiku. First Snow, children's hangers, clatter in the closet. This is a memory of living in Winnipeg, uh, long snowy winters there. Toll booth, lit for Christmas. From my hand to hers, warm change. This was inspired by the toll booth on the San Mateo Bridge in the San Francisco area. First star, seashell held to my baby's ear. This poem won grand prize in a special uh, Basho haiku contest in Japan uh, for English language poems, and they translated into Japanese, not not the translation that uh, I'm sharing on screen. Um, and my wife looked at it and said, they didn't translate your poem, they translated the meaning of the poem. Hmm. And she said that the translation that they had rendered was, first star, the shape of the baby's ear is like the shape of the seashell. Oh, wow. Uh... Which, which is what I'm trying to imply, but they, the translation in the Japanese gave it away, um, which was an interesting thing. Uh, but yeah, you want to leave something out of a haiku so that it can be picked up by the reader. An old woolen sweater taken yarn by yarn from the snowbank. I have a question for you. What season do you think this is? I'd say winter. <laughs> well, that's that's the obvious thing. But why would an old woolen sweater be taken yarn by yarn? Um, so this is a question I raise when I when I give haiku workshops. Mm-hmm. And usually someone will pipe up and say, oh, it's a bird building a nest. It's a spring ball. Hmm. So the snowbank is melting. Um, I, but I take a risk with that. You, you know, you may not get there with old woolen sweater taken by yarn by yarn snowbank may not uh, jump to the fact that this is a bird so I take a risk with that but um, when you see faces light up when they get this poem be that that risk is tulip festival colors of all the cars parking lot 
inspired by the Skagit uh, Valley Tulip Festival, which is Seattle. Spring breeze, full of her hand as we near the pet store. What age do you picture in this song? Um, a young child, I'd say. So, yes, I think most people do, and yet it doesn't actually say. So where does that feeling come from? And I think it comes from our associations of, our association with puppies and kittens at a pet store and how kids like that. Um, but it's also, I think, in the lightness of breeze and the youthfulness of spring. Hmm. And, and the fact is that this was actually written in June by adult girlfriend going to a coffee shop. <laughs> but what inspired it was the pull of her hand and the energy of that. And see, I walked faster than her. And here was, she was pulling my hand, wanting to, you know, get to some, a little place where it was foggy in Palo Alto. And uh, um, she wanted to get inside a warm coffee shop. But, but the pull of her hand arrested. And it felt right to change details um, to, to tell a different kind of truth. Scattered petals, thud, my books, book drop. So uh, I'll just talk briefly about haiku theory. Obviously, the petals would be the seasonal reference. And then I use the ellipsis to mark the cut, the, the division between the two parts. Um, and then we have the second part, it's the juxtaposition, the thud of my books and the book drop. Well, that'll tell you it's at a library setting. Um, and yet, what is the connection between these two things? And I think that's a fundamental aspect of haiku. When you have the two parts juxtaposed, they, they immediately pose the question, what does part A have to do with part B? And I think it's the reader's uh, job to, to intuit that. Um, in this case, falling petals or maybe like falling books Except that one is light and one is heavy, um, so there's there's contrast as, as well as uh, comparison. And I'm trying to evoke a feeling. Whatever the feeling you might get from it comes from the objective description of facts. And I like to say in my workshops, don't write about your feelings. Instead, write about what caused your feelings. And uh, I recently read. Um, um, Louise Gluck's uh, Proofs and Theories essays. And I love a, a section of that where she says a good poem, and this applies to haiku, but also longer poem, good poem should summon feeling, not impose it, hmm. or summon thought, not impose it. And that's, I think, a, a key aspect of haiku. Summer moonlight, potter's wheel slows. This, uh, um, this won second prize in a haiku contest once. And the first prize winner was a 14-year-old. And I've, I've wondered who that was ever since. <laughs> so I never saw any of his work ever again. Do you remember the haiku? No, I don't. <laughs> but it was for the Boston Haiku Society contest uh, in 1990. So this is, this is an old poem. Crackling beach fire, come, place of words you can't recall. 
Meteor shower. Gentle waves. Wets our sandals. I like the up and downness of this. You know, maybe there's a, a tide shifting here that's wetting our sandals. We're so busy looking up the celestial objects and realize the tide has changed. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's celestial objects like the moon that causes those tides. So After the quake, weather vane pointing to Earth. Inspired by a 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake. I think about 60 people in San Francisco area. I lived through. Home for Christmas. My childhood desk drawer. Yeah, thanks so much. That was a great lesson in haiku right there. And and we have a lot of questions, too, already from the audience. Because I'd like to, you know, teach everybody more about haiku as much as we can in this in this segment of the show. And uh, first of all, so um, CB99videos, who is Carla Schwartz, asks, um, do you believe that all haiku must imply a season? And that's a, the question we get. I mean, we, you know, if you um, ask that, that, that middle school version of haiku, right? It's the five seven five, and then the uh, the season word, and that's what they tell if you. You're lucky, if you're lucky. If you're lucky, yeah. They <laughs> sometimes don't even get to the seasonal reference. Yeah. So we talked um, about, uh, yeah, we talked with Richard Gilbert about, um, you know, the way and then that episode, and the way that uh, there's really no way to do season in English in the same way as in Chinese, because there's these whole tomes that describe which words re- relate to which seasons. There's this whole history. But do you think that there's still a reason to include a season in every haiku? So in Japan, a traditional haiku, some schools of haiku in Japan require it. If it's not, if it doesn't have a season word, it's not, a, doesn't qualify, it's fail. Um, there are other schools in Japan that say, well, it doesn't always have to have a season um, and a, an interesting distinction is some people teach haiku as a nature poem, and that's not really accurate either, that it's really the seasonal aspect that a haiku is after. So you could refer to, say, Christmas or Japanese festival of Tanabara, and it's not nature, but it's still seasonal, and that counts. So um, uh, I, I like to think of targets for haiku instead of rules so a good target for haiku is to have a seasonal reference that anchors poem in time and alludes to other poems and has has other benefits um it, it makes it more present here now etc personal um so so to me a seasonal word is opportunity not an obligation mm-hmm. and if you write a poem and it's really good without a season word don't mess with it like it might be an indoor poem Leave it alone. Um, but on the other hand, if, if it feels flat, maybe adding a seasonal reference of some kind can, can give it the energy it needs. So that's how I like to think of it as an opportunity. Um, uh, there are plenty of examples of haiku in English that do not have seasonal references, but I think work perfectly well. Mm-hmm. And then along a similar lines, uh, Katie Dozier asks, uh, what, the different, what is the difference between using ellipses versus an M dash after scattered petals? So we talk about that cut 
Um, yeah. You know, how do you choose which? I know in, in Japanese, there's actually different words that signify the punctuation. And so it's very clear what they're doing. But how do you determine whether a colon or a dash or nothing at all, like some of those haiku had? How do you decide which to, you know, which to do? What's the difference between a colon and a dash? It's it's not rolling the dice. There is intentionality behind it. Um, a dash for me is more instant, more immediate. Like this is happening right at the same time as the other thing. Whereas an ellipsis has a bit of a break, sort of a, a longer pause for me anyway. And I think that's generally what most years of haiku in journals like um, Modern Haiku or Frog Pond will, will they'll apprehend that slower pause mm-hmm. than ellipsis. There are also some haiku poets that use no punctuation at all because the pause is actually inherent in the grammar. So meteor shower a fragment is one thing a gentle wave wets our sandals that's split over two lines but it's grammatically separate from the first part so the pause is actually there i choose to mark cut punctuation and i'll most often use um an m dash or an ellipsis uh or sometimes an indent place of punctuation um pretty rarely any other kind of punctuation um but like in japanese they, they will have a, I think there's 18 different cutting words. For example, in Basho's famous old pond poem, first line is furuike ya. And ya is the cutting word. Furuike is, the old, is old pond. And um, ya is the cutting word. Kana is another common one. Kitty, and there's quite a few others. Um, and they, they've been described as emotional shading. And you can see that same kind of effect that an exclamation mark is going to be more intense than a comma, obviously. Mm-hmm. And there's there's other other overtones to the uh, the um, cutting words in Japanese. Um, so I choose to mark it, and I, I I will choose one particular mark over another depending on um, how long I want you to think about it, or how instant the connection is between. Uh, between the two parts, mm-hmm. or like in the, the one poem I, I read earlier, the scattered petals, the thud of my books in the book drop, I used the ellipsis in that one because I wanted you to dwell on that. But I also thought dots of the ellipsis are sort of petal-like, mm-hmm. um, and that that can become old pretty quickly. But um, that's what motivated that partly. Uh-huh. Yeah, so so it's kind of in a way feel too, in the same way line breaks might be with a more traditional yeah. poem. Um, and, and on the same sort of topic, does every haiku have to have a cut? Is that something that that's universal to all haiku? And, and it's like degrees of cut along a continuum of like how sharp it is, or is it like, yeah. can you have a haiku with no cut whatsoever? Yes, you can. What you really want to avoid is a haiku with two cuts or two, uh, more than two parts. And that's a, a beginner pitfall, I think. So. You know, each line is grammatically separate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you want to have just one cut uh, between two parts only. However, this is a trick, and this is a little bit more complicated, and it's perhaps a more advanced thing in, in haiku, is in Japan, you can end a haiku with a cutting word. Mm-hmm. And kana is the most important, most common way to do that. And I think of Busan, a lot of his, his haiku end with kana. And by having the cut at the end of the poem, 
it allows you to make it a one-part poem. And so the cut is still there, but it's cut with something. The cut is between the poem and something outside the poem. Mm -hmm. And if you look back at, uh, think back to the poem, an old woolen sweater taken yarn by yarn from the snowbank, it's one phrase. It is a one-part poem. And it, it is equivalent, I like to think, uh, to having the cutting word at the end of the poem to imply something outside the poem, in this case, bird building the nest. Um, whether everybody gets there, you know, that's the risk I take. But that is an example of a one-part poem um, that uh, many other people do too. And I've seen some people look at haiku and, and say, well, this has only one part. You have to have a cut. Well, no, not necessarily. Yeah, that's there's interesting. Plenty of, there's plenty of precedent for one-part poems in Japanese. Mm -hmm. But again, it's an opportunity. Could the poem be improved by giving it a juxtaposition, create the energy and space uh, between the two parts. So that's a choice. To yeah. Well, that's interesting, but it seems like that's still juxtaposition though. Cause even if you're, if you're putting the cut at the very end and almost like an ellipses, you're implying some other context going further after the poem finishes, there's still a juxtaposition between what's going on and what's not. So there's still a sense of movement. Yeah. It, it feels necessary to me. I was trying to think of any poems. I mean, even like a poem like Tundra, the one word on the page has like a implication between the page itself and the word, um, I couldn't think of any that that I've ever come across that have just sort of a oneness to it. Is there like anything that that you can think of that has a oneness, or is that just is, there, is a juxtaposition on, like central to to the haiku? It's pretty central. I I agree. It's uncommon. Um, with some research, I know I could I could find some in Japanese and English. Um, the tundra poem to me, uh, speaking of that, um, it's um, word on an otherwise blank page me like a stone that's emerging from melting snow hmm. so for me it's a spring poem and all that expanse of snow of the white page is just starting to melt and we're seeing the stone that's a very personal interpretation and somebody else may see it in a completely non-physical way purely say an intellectual way hmm. um, um, subtleties of tundra yeah. um whatever that is, you know, the small world of the, the, the botany and everything else that goes on in, under landscapes. It's, it's subtle. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, for me, I always thought of that as the, um, like a whiteout blizzard, like we'd have back on the shores of Lake Ontario when I was a kid, and you could only see like your hand in front of your face, but nothing yeah. else. And so the tundra's emerging out of that. It's really cool to think of it as spring melt too. That's really neat. Um, well, there's a, there's the poet Seisen Sui referred to haiku as an unfinished poem, mm -hmm. meaning that we as readers have the opportunity to finish the poem with our own experience. And it, it's the withholding of things in haiku that allows us as readers to fill in the, the story, to fill in, the, you know, you, you take your, your Lake Ontario experience to it. Um, um, can't say I've had know spring in the tundra experience myself but uh that's what i i project onto the poem. Mm -hmm. yeah but yeah just it's so interesting uh, and great lessons already i mean people are saying it up and down the comments section uh we should tackle the 575 issue because what i was applying before is every time we publish haiku in rattle 
like <laughs> six people email me and say, that's not a haiku. It's not 575. And I give them the link to your essay. Um, you, you know, we haven't mentioned yet, but right now is um, National Haiku Writing Month and the logo that you yes. use for, um, I don't know if you still use it, but for a long time you use the no, no 575, like the, you know, the, the not, do, don't do that symbol. <laughs> the slash the slash through the numbers. Yeah. And, and so um, why and it, yeah, so why no five seven five instead of just you don't have to five seven five? Like what's the difference between no so and, and, and I'll clarify, although so that symbol is polemical. It's it's designed to make people think. And uh running the high Rimo National Haiku Writing Month for thirteen years, and I think it's hostile to some people receive it hostilely and you know i don't mean that and i actually am okay with some haiku being 575 what what i'm trying to point out with that symbol is that too many people think that all you have to do is count syllables and if you've got 575 you've got a haiku pat yourself on the back never mind that it's about uh you know you know picking up litter in the park or whatever your subject is uh, and in japan they literally have police signs that are 575. Nobody confuses them with haiku, but it's a natural rhythm in the language. Um, in Japan, okay, so an example would be uh, hototogisu, which is cuckoo. And hototogisu is, it uses up five of the sounds right away, and all it does is name the bird. But in English, we would say cuckoo and still have three syllables left if we wanted to, to, to fill a five-syllable line. So we could add uh, extra words, empty, cuckoo's nest. So I'm adding an extra noun, I'm telling you it's empty, and I'm adding a possessive. So I'm adding a lot more information. And the nature of Japanese words is that every consonant has a vowel sound with it. Um, occasionally there'll be two doubled consonants, like the word Nippon has two P's in the middle when it's spelled out in English. Um, but what they count is not syllables. It has never been syllables, ever. And so the idea that haiku should be 575 syllables in English is, I would call it an urban myth. And just to demonstrate that further, um, we have the word jo, and in Japanese, think of the word jo. Not jo, which is kind of longer, but just jo. All Japanese syllables are like that, um, except for the letter n, which ends some words. That's counted as a separate sound. So we can say jo or jo if we want, but we can change that sound and say joy, joy. And it's still one syllable, but the sound has elided. We have now left behind all Japanese syllables, every single one of them, except for that N sound, which is an, an oddity and the doubling of, of two consonants. Um, uh, but we can add an S to that word and say joys, even further away from Japanese syllables. Or we can, instead of a Z sound, we can make it sound and say joyce. Or we can go even further and say joist. And even further and say joists. Uh, and we're a long, long way from what is counted in the, in the Japanese haiku. That little syllabet is a, uh, a term that I think Robin Gill, a translator, uses. That really they're counting sounds. The word is on, um, not syllables. 
and there's been much written about this, about how um, they're just different. Um, there, a friend a couple of years ago, she published a book of haiku by uh, in Tokyo by Kodansha, and in her in her introduction, she said, "If you are writing 17 syllables in English, that's sometimes enough for two haiku in Japanese." Um, so. With all that being said, I'm trying to point out that the tension on 575 is actually to the detriment of other targets that are more important, that people don't learn. Um, the, the cutting word, the seasonal reference, the object of sensory imagery, illusion, and there are various other techniques like the pivot, where something can mean two things at once in between. Um, and there are other techniques. And these are all obscured by... You know this this rigid focus on 575 that being said if you choose to write a 575 it can still work provided you hit the other targets provided you're aware of the fact that it's likely to be much longer poem than a typical japanese haiku so not everyone's persuaded that's fine so choose to write 575 if you want but please please try to be aware of the other targets that's all i ask yeah. <laughs> well, I always think of a, to me, haiku, it seems like a, like two worlds in one breath might be how you think of it. And then that yeah. one breath aspect, do, do you think, I know a lot of people think that the one breath is ruined by having that many syllables and that long. It's no longer one breath if you have as long as what is an American sentence. Um, yeah. And uh, do, do you well, subscribe to that? Do you, do you think it's, it, it just feels like it's too much to have that many syllables? Yeah. I, I have an essay about this called The Heft of Haiku. I draw. I use the metaphor that a haiku in J Japan is like a baseball, and it's got a certain size to it. Whereas if you write five seven five in English, it's a bigger ball, hmm. and it's just different. Um, and if you want to be have about the same heft, you know, this is the idea of you just say cuckoo, and you're equivalent to hototugisu, because most Japanese words have more sounds per concept than the English equivalent as a general rule, as an average. Um, so if you want to write, I don't know, softball sized poems, that's your choice, but be aware that it's a different heft compared to the lighter, um, more delicate or uh, more subtle mm -hmm. um, or more limited heft of the Japanese poem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I guess to, to follow up, just not to beat this topic to death, but but why do you think that uh, people are so drawn to counting syllables? Do, do you think there's a reason? I've, I've asked everybody this. Everybody has a different kind of opinion, but it's definitely like people like doing the haiku in the way that is just, you know, count on my fingers. Yeah. And then, you know, if you ask for a haiku contest and send the, the haiku to the Mars, it's probably going to be 575 that they pick yeah. at NASA. Well, so. I think it's it's mildly satisfying. You know, you fill the bucket and you pat yourself on the back. Um, it's paint by numbers. Um, you know, it's, it's perhaps a starting point. I actually don't like to start haiku that way, but I never teach it that way as a starting point. But I know a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I don't know. I think it's one of those things you learn in school and you put it in a box. This is haiku. I've learned it. This is all there is to it. And it, it just, you know, people, what puzzles me is why some people are so adamant about saying, you know, when they see something that's not 575, they'll complain about it. Mm -hmm. they'll, they'll wag their finger or they'll, you know, 
want to send their armies out to, to get you um, because you clearly don't know what haiku is if it's not 575. Um, and, you know, you can spin wheels about this all a lot, but to me, I, I'm more concerned about, is it a good poem? Is it a sh good short poem? Regardless of whether it's a haiku or a gendai modern haiku or some other kind of haiku, um, and there's lots of varieties: sci-fi haiku, horror haiku, um, and there are many other other genres that one can dabble in. Um, is it a good short poem? That that matters to me more than whether it's a haiku or or humorous version. Send you, which is another debate. Yeah. So if you don't mind, like keep talking about haiku because people are learning so much and all the listeners are, I, I don't know what percentage of uh, listeners already know all this stuff, but I think it's the majority probably don't. Um, so, so another question is about rhyming and haiku. Who is it that asked that? Um, yeah. So Mark Grinier says, I've seen prohibitions against using rhymes and similar sounding words in haiku. What do you think about that? Um, I, my sense is that if the rhyme is obvious, it kind of overshadows the poem. If it's subtle or natural, then there's not, nothing wrong with it, but don't let it be too strong. Um, if I start saying, um, it's the last day of June, and I am about to swoon, I just hit you over the head with a rhyme. You know? Whereas um, there are other ways that are much more subtle and, and quiet, and if they're natural, there's no problem with it. Um, Something to be aware of, too, is that in Japanese, all words end the vowel or that N sound. So every single word in the entire Japanese, other than N endings, will end with one of five vowels. And they're all said exactly the same way. A, I, U, E, O. There's no long or short vowels like we have in English. So every word is going to end with one of those six sounds, N. Um, so rhyme is ex actually extremely common in Japanese poetry or Japanese speech, but nobody hears it. They're not sensitive to it because it's so utterly common. Um, and in fact, um, uh, when my, my daughter, she's, uh, um, she's 17 now, I think, um, uh, when she was first getting into anime and learning all these Japanese songs, uh, so on, I asked her, you know, do any of these rhyme? And she said, no. <laughs> You're surprised I would even ask. Uh -huh. You know, all these Japanese songs, they, they don't rhyme. Uh, sometimes they'll, they, there may be exceptions, obviously, but yeah, it's just whatever. If you want to rhyme in haiku, be aware that it, it, it can overshadow the poem. And uh, I'm forgetting who said this. Um, a haiku is like a finger pointing to the moon. And if the finger is bejeweled, no longer see them. Hmm. And a rhyme to, to me is too often like a jewel on the finger. And any other kind of poetic device risks being a jewel on the finger, like a, a heavy metaphor or simile. It, it can point to the cleverness of the poet rather than getting the poet out of the way to pull as directly as possible to the experience or the image. So you want to see the moon. You can't help but still have a finger because that's what our poetry is. It is a finger pointing at something but it you want to see what it's pointing at as directly as possible without jewels in the finger on the other hand there are probably those who love the jewels and they they write a different sort of poem mm -hmm. yeah well uh i think one more question there's a 
a bunch of people have asked questions about um, particular things. I think your answer in general was just, if it works as a short poem, it's, you know, it's a target, not a, not a rule. Um, but, but someone else, two other people asked about um, the difference between haiku and senru. So uh, uh, is, that some, is it a distinction that you think is significant, and, and how would you define the, the two? That, that is, uh, um, I think, more of a concern for those who are writing haiku in English and it is for those in Japan. Um, my perception of them is that if haiku is a finger pointing at the moon, send you is a finger poking you in the ribs. <laughs> that if if a haiku is reverent, send you is irreverent. Um, a haiku celebrates something, and it could be a dark subject. A very dark subject, but it recognizes it and holds it up on a platter. Uh, whereas a senyu kind of throws it at you. Um, uh, and is where a haiku is reverent, a senyu is irreverent. Um, I don't, I don't, that, that points out a tone difference, a difference in tone. And for me, a haiku, um, where, where a haiku celebrates a subject, the senyu. Um, to be said to poke fun at it, to have a victim of some sort. It could be yourself. You're making fun of yourself or you're pointing out a human foible of some kind. Um, uh, that to that is a tonal difference as well. Some people say that if it lacks a season word, it's a send you. I don't believe that at all. Because mm-hmm. There's plenty of haiku that don't have season words that work perfectly well. Some people say that if it has a human in it, it's a send you. Again, I disagree with that because there's plenty of humans in in uh, haiku in Japanese, and I think of uh, Busan's famous poem, uh, "Autumn Chill." I step on my dead wife's comb, hmm. which to me is very chilling, um, and he's totally present in it, and his wife is present in it, and you'll see lots of other poems if you if you read Jisei or the. Uh, tradition of the death poem um, that people write just before they know they're about to die. Uh, there's a rich tradition of that among samurai, for example. Uh, the great majority of those poems make references to the self. It's just, you don't have to avoid that. And yet it's still haiku. So human content or not, humor versus not, uh, season word versus not, you know, Depending on which one it is, it may sort of tend to be more send you than not. Um, but it's not any one of those things. But ultimately, to, ultimately to me, it's a matter of tone um, and whether one is pointing at the moon or poking at the roots. Yeah, it's a good distinction and, and maybe an unnecessary one in a lot of ways. And I, I think, um, I don't know, and I, if I remember right, in Frog Pond, the, the journal, and in Modern Haiku, I think, don't they just say Haiku and Senru and don't really distinguish between the two? Is that, cause, Don't segregate them. Yeah, so that's what uh, I mean. At yeah. least currently. Yeah, and I think that's like a fun way to read, not knowing which one you're going to get. It sort of helps the balance between those two moods that you were talking about. So I really like reading them that way. It, it's, it empowers you as the reader. You get to decide if you want to, rather than having the distinction forced upon you so when I, I mean, it used to be Frog Pond would segregate them for a couple of years under white editor. And frequently I'd think, well, that's a haiku, not a senyu, or vice versa. Usually the senyu I thought were, 
or haiku. Yeah, uh, interesting. More often than the other way around. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm being distracted by this, whereas if they're just not segregated, I'll just enjoy them as poems without having to worry about the category. Yeah. So I, I think that's a better way to read poetry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, well, this has been like a condensed, maybe one of the best condensed lessons in poetry or in, in haiku that, that anybody's had probably watching this. Let's do another poem. So the next one is a poem uh, that you wrote written after a haiku. Let's read that one and then we'll, we'll talk some more. Okay, this is called Flowers on the Roof of Hell. And it begins with an Isa poem um, from which I take the title. He wrote... In this world, walk on the roof of hell, gazing at flowers. And Isa was one of the four great masters of uh, haiku in Japan. And uh, in this poem, I imagine visiting, or that he's visiting me. So, here we go. Today, Isa came over for dinner. Nothing fancy, just Thai takeout from the place down the road came on foot carrying a satchel. I welcomed him at the door and he removed his sandals. The low evening sun sparkled through the tall glass of water I gave him. He admired it, for he drank it one go. I showed him to the living room, where he sat on the couch almost delicately, then, as if conscious of his bare feet, curled them up under himself. We talked of poetry all through dinner, stray noodles landing on the plain wooden table as we ate. We talked of favorite poets and poems, the challenge of writing freshly about old subjects. We talked of writing one's joy, fiercely crushed world, flowers on the roof of hell. When he told me it was time for him to go, I asked if I could give him a ride. He declined, as I knew he would. He had a long way to travel, but held a finger to his lips, gently shook his smile. Then Isa took his sandals in hand, padded off in the dark. I opened the satchel he left behind, beside it, white asters. And that was uh, Flowers on the Roof of Hell by Michael Dylan Welch. And uh, so, so one of the things I wanted to talk about was um, the way that haiku is unusual as a, as a genre and that the community is very separated from the rest of the literary community that's publishing mainstream so-called poetry. And, and why do you think that is? I, you know, uh, we talking to uh, Richard Gilbert again. Um, he feels like there's this haiku spirit, that there's such a joy in haiku, that, it's, that, that there's such a sense of community within haiku that it's hard to leave. And, and here's a poem that's a traditional free verse poem you know, written after haiku, but that you've written here. How do you, like, why do you think that, that the haiku community is so close-knit, first of all? And then, and then how do you feel leaving that, that community that you, that you have, that you've helped build? Well, I don't know that doing... Longer poetry feels like leaving it. It's sort of the continuum. Um, I know Billy Collins once said that there's a lot of existential gratitude in haiku. And I think that's a fundamental way that people who write haiku deeply as a literary art, how they feel. They're just, there's just this constant existential gratitude. 
and there's a, a line from Mary Oliver that I love to quote that I think applies to haiku, even though she wasn't saying so. Um, uh, instructions for living a life. Pay attention. That's where haiku starts. Be astonished. And that's the existential gratitude that you're either born with or whatever. And then she says, tell about it. Be, you know, pay attention, be astonished, tell about it. And that to me is the haiku life. And if you're wired that way, notice things all the time. And other people, every, everybody notices, things. of course, it's not a special trait, but a haiku poet will notice ordinary things and be astonished by them and point them out. So, you know, whatever the ordinary thing is that you write your haiku about, suddenly thinking of Jack Kane's very simple poem, an empty elevator opens, closes. The fundamental mystery of press the button, where did they go? And that's an indoor poem, so no season word is necessary. I think it would destroy the poem. Uh, but it has this fundamental mystery. It still has two parts. Uh, an empty elevator opens, and a pause, closes. Um, so I, I don't know. There, This is... You're, you're wired for this, or you're not, perhaps. Um, um, I think it's a natural community that, that those who write haiku are just drawn to each other. I, I feel like a kinship to people that I know from Australia, New Zealand, India, South Africa, uh, Portugal, all over Europe, uh, Japan, obviously. You know, even to the point that I might even be able to stay in their house if I visited, if that they're otherwise strangers. Um, you know, there, there's that closeness. But here's the other thing, the other side of the coin, is that I also think, this is a bad thing, I think. I think haiku poets put themselves in a ghetto. Mm -hmm. They keep themselves in a ghetto. They keep to their own journals. They don't send their poems out. And I'm guilty of this, too. It's easy to send my haiku to the haiku journals. Um but, you know, keep ourselves in the ghetto by doing that. And if we, if we send our poems out to non-haiku places, uh, it might break down this, um, this difference. Um, I'm suddenly thinking of something I remember Annie Finch said. She said, haiku poets are touchy. <laughs> and I think that's true. But it, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll some of us, like me, sometimes will get bent out of shape trying to explain the 575 business. Um, and, you know, it makes us seem touchy. So we're kind of people, they want to push us away. That's our own fault. That's how we put ourselves in a ghetto. Um, there are exceptions to that in that, in that I think, especially in recent years, Haibun, prose with haiku, is much more widely accepted in mainstream poetry journals. Um, um, there are sequences that are published here and there. Some of them are, you know, Poetry Magazine will publish uh, haiku sequences, but they're all perfectly 575 and seem not always with an awareness of other techniques, mm -hmm. but not always, you know. Um, there, there are exceptions, but, but mostly what's, what's written as haiku seems to be unaware of what the haiku community is aware of. And we have the danger of feeling holier than thou, and I think that's wrong. But we have the, the ongoing challenge of how do we share the light that we think we have. Mm -hmm. 
do we have light that others don't? You know, even that is a presumption of arrogant. And I don't, I don't know how to deal with that, but um, uh, more, more sensitivity to it um, from people who think they know haiku uh, would, would help. And in this sense, I'm really grateful for Rattle because you're one of the few, you know, fairly well-established, well-respected poetry journals that is not just sympathetic to haiku, sympathetic to a, a deeper understanding of haiku beyond syllable count. So uh, thank you for that, and thank you for your Japanese forms issue a few years ago. Yeah, well, I was going to say that uh, it was one of the things I thought that once we did a Japanese forms issue, that we'd start to get submissions all over the place from haiku poets and say, oh, Rattle appreciates haiku, and we really don't. I mean, you know, Deborah Kologi submits and George yeah. Swede, you do... Um, you know, Roberta Beery does, but, but outside of a few people, um, we've never gotten submissions from a whole lot of people that you see. And I really admire all over the haiku community. Um, and so, so, that, so, so just if anybody's watching, like, please do send haiku because yeah. we love, we love haiku. <laughs> so I think one thing that's part of that is that because so many haiku poets are in the ghetto sort of, um, they know their haiku journals and they're, there's a lot to keep up with, and it's hard to keep up with it all. Um, and they don't write longer poetry, so they're not moving in non-haiku circles. They may never hear of Rattle, or seldom. Uh, they would never hear of other journals. Like, I think of Hummingbird, journal, a journal for short poetry, um, that you know, was started by Phyllis Walsh. She was very, very open to haiku poetry. Um, uh, you know, journals like that, that are sort of on the fringe of haiku, even those don't necessarily get people from the haiku community mm -hmm. submitting to them. So I think this is how I think haiku poets need to get out of their ghetto. And I, I admire Debbie Koloji for what she does. I and mean, she's constantly sending her haiku to non-haiku markets. And even uh, at a Haiku North America conference, she gave a workshop on places to send your haiku that are not in the haiku community, uh -huh. Rattle being one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, definitely. And I hope people do, because um, I always look for them and, and I, I love them when they're good. Um, like I love all poetry when it's good, but there's something special about haiku and the difference between, you know, a lot of times we get so another complaint we always get just about regular poems that we usually publish is they're so dark. And I, I never thought of it that way. But that's a thing that that there's a appreciation and a gratitude that comes in so many haiku that's almost a contrast to um, a lot of what what more traditional poets are writing. Um, but on the, on the other side too, I want to say that I remember uh, when Poetry Magazine first published, I, I, I was I saw a post that everybody was talking about. I, I don't know whose post it was, but but I remember someone saying, um, you know, they finally published haiku and it's not even haiku, and everybody was was just, yeah. and uh, and it, and I looked at it and it wasn't. I mean, it had no, it had no juxtaposition at all, and it was five seven five. It was just, it was a short poems written in that you know, stands a form, I guess you could say. So I understand uh, being frustrated and, and felt like you're, you know, not being recognized or noticed for what's actually going on. So I, I see both sides of it. Just hope people do send us stuff. <laughs> well, I hope, hope you get more of it. And I, I need to wag the finger at myself. I need to send you more, more of my haiku and, and other poems myself. Yeah. Well, we've been talking a lot and, and, um, Let's. Uh, I want to read more poems too. We, we've been talking and teaching so much, which which I really a lot of people are appreciating. But I want to read a few more poems. So let's do another one, uh, Michael. So um, I have a list of poems. Should I curtail the list so that we uh, get them done? Get certain 
one's done in time. Yeah, we could do two or three more. So whatever whatever you want to do. Because I know you have to go uh, about 45 uh, minutes or so. But, uh, okay, but we're going to so, go before that. Maybe 15 or 20 more minutes, I'd say. Okay. So here's a poem called Matador. Skipping ahead in the list I gave you. If I were as important as Billy Collins, I'd write about fertilizer, maybe belly button lint. I'd find some sort of epiphany and throw it in near the end of the poem, or maybe just give the thing a twist so readers feel disoriented as if I'd driven them to the edge of town, left them by a cornfield darker night. I'd steal from other writers with the arrogant presumption that my esteemed readers will catch on Mention suicide and rising tides and chicken bones left on a broken plate to tantalize with accessible inscrutability. And then I'd meander off with a flip of a hand, waving my cape in the wind as if my audience wasn't as colorblind as a bull stuck with whatever that thing is to stick bulls with. <laughs> yeah, great heading on that. That was Matador, another poem by Michael Dylan Welch. Um, I see. So, so we have a lot more. Just people want to talk about haiku, and uh, there's a lot of questions <laughs> about it too. So, so, um, so, uh, Carlos Schwartz again says, uh, since you mentioned haiben, can a haiben be followed by a senru rather than a haiku? And and how? Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. Do with it what you like. Any <laughs> num any combination of poems, you know, you can have three haiku to start, or a haiku and a senru to start, and then. No haiku at the end. There's even, um, uh, I've written an essay about Shaibun without haiku, any haiku at all. Oh, interesting. Um, <laughs> but where just the prose has that poetic, it's almost like a prose poem, actually. Um, uh, but it, there's a, an example written in the 1700s of Shaibun with a set of Shaibun where some of them had no haiku at all. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it could be a senyu. Um, there's a new term that's come up in the last 10 or so years called tanka prose, where you it's haibun, but instead of a haiku, you use a tanka. Um, so that's a variation, too. Mm -hmm. And um, I mentioned Mary Rufel earlier. Uh, I'm reading her, her book of essays, Madness, Rack, and Honey. And um, several of the essays, just in the middle of the paragraphs, she'll suddenly just name an image. And it's sort of like completely out of left field. And you go back to the essay and there's no logic to it, but it has this energy to it that is totally like Haibun, that linking and shifting between the prose and the poem. So have have at it. Go for it. <laughs> and then and then what about all the other friends? You mentioned Tanka, which is a five line um, sort of a version of a haiku. There's so many different forms, and we we sort of you know focus on haiku mostly. We call it the haiku community. There's the haiku foundation, um, but there's so many different forms: the the renge and the renku and and all the different linked versions and the collaborative versions. Um, why do you think uh, haiku is the one that stands out as the one we talk about most? First of all, I think because it's unique. It's more of a novelty, or at least it began that way. Um, I founded the Tonka Society of America in 2000. I also write a lot of Tonka. I uh, took a break and I've come back as president. So I'm still, I'm still into it. Um, tonka is much more like Western poetry. It, it, it's metaphor and simile and overt 
mention of, of emotion that a haiku doesn't. And I think it's that uniqueness, the restrictions um, of haiku that make it different from Western poetry. Um, and I think that helps elevate it, uh, makes it more attractive. I don't know. Um, a favorite quote uh, by Roland Barthes is he says, Haiku has this rather phantasmagorical property that we always suppose we can write such things easily. Hmm. I love that quote um, because haiku look easy. I think that's part of its feel. It looks easy. And some teachers teach it as a way to, you know, an entry point into poetry or an entry point into understanding syllables, if that's what they're using it for. Um, and I, unfortunately, I think a lot of people associate haiku as a short with children, that it's children's poetry. Uh, which is unfortunate, but um, if that's where it stops. Um, but I think that that um, easy accessibility is part of its appeal. Whereas if, if you sit down somebody who's never written poetry before and say, hey, write a sonnet or write a villanelle, uh, <laughs> it's going to be a lot harder for them. Whereas the, the haiku, just for brevity's sake alone, is going to be easier easier to start. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and there's a question here, and I wanted to so, – so here's first the question from Lisa um, Dillon. She says, what is your feeling about taking the liberty of writing a long-form application of haiku by creating a through line that moves through multiple haiku as a single poem? And two of the poems that we published of yours, Separation and uh, Is It True Colors, I think is the title, um, yeah. use through lines where, where one word is repeated like that. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to – you sent – it was in the packet, but you sent me um, those um, online uh, – books the the um the eyeball kick and the, yeah. with, with the hydrogen yeah. jukebox which i thought was really fascinating um would you mind c- can you pull that up one of those uh, books like maybe the is it possible to pull it up quickly where you are uh maybe um, eyeball kick or something like that let me see how quickly uh talk amongst yourselves <laughs> yeah but these are fascinating i mean and in all four all four books have the same through line. Speaking of whether or not Michael believes in having a through line, um, <laughs> so uh, so the distinction the distinction I would make there mm-hmm. is that um, it's not a. Th- I've seen some longer poems where it's it's one long poem, but it has haiku like stanzas. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sam Hamill has done this, for example, and I think Aiden. Uh, is it Hayden Carruth? Or I'm forgetting who else has done it. But um, that's different from whatever I've done. What I've done is I've repeated a word in a several uh, uh, sequences. And there's still sequences. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the difference, I think, is that um, there are sequences of, of short poems. The, the hydrogen jukebox phrase that I repeat, I consider this to be um, short poetry, I don't consider it to be haiku, but uh, mm. here's here's uh, an example. Um, this is uh, uh, the f- I, there's I made a trilogy of these little ebooks, and this is the fourth of the trilogy, and it's called Ocular Oracle. And I'll just uh, for those who can't see it, I'm sorry you're missing all the beautiful colored images that go with it. Um, uh, but here's one of the poems. Hydrogen jukebox. Simultaneously, our pens run out of ink. And there's a deliberate leap. And so it's haiku-like, deliberate leap between 
one part and the other part. So it still retains that. And our pen's running out of ink. That's experiential. So that's haiku-like, I guess. But I don't consider these to be haiku, hmm. mainly because I don't care. Um, but anyway, on the next page, there are two poems. Hydrogen jukebox, all the elements of style. If you're a strunken white pen. Hydrogen jukebox, the screams of ants. What does that mean? Uh, it's deliberately surreal. And then on the next page, I have three poems. Um, hydrogen jukebox, frog, fog. If you can tell me what this means, please, please do. Um, I, and I'm just playing here. And I'm using this idea of the eyeball kick from uh, uh, Allen Ginsberg. And he used a particular phrase, hydrogen jukebox, and howl as an example of this. This idea of, of two juxtaposed words that give you a, a double take. That's what he means by eyeball kick. Um, what does hydrogen juke? What does hydrogen have to do with jukebox? You know, it's it's deliberately beyond logic. And then I I'm, I'm choosing to trying I try to extend this by putting that phrase with various other things um, in an extended sequence and. Uh, on my website, you can find the, the four ebooks um, interspersed with different uh, uh, color images uh, between each. There's a, a one poem, then two poems, and three, then an image, and then it repeats. Mm -hmm. um, so there's there's many dozens of these poems, um, um, and it's um, to me it's 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 tapping into. Um, play with language more than anything else. Um, and in this case, letting getting myself out of the way. So in other poems, I have intention. I have sort of a trope or some sort of maybe even a gimmick or a point of view or a message or a story, something else that's driving the poem. This in These poems, the hydrogen jukeboxes, I, I don't know what's driving them except a repeated phrase that's it mm -hmm. and repeated phrase and the energy it might create something mysterious that i pair it with hydrogen jukebox license plate factory out of metal we can imagine a license plate factory being out of metal that's easy enough and we might think of a prison prison what does that have to do with hydrogen jukebox <laughs> i don't know um, and and it's it's that embracing of the of the not knowing. Um, there's a Buddhist term for that. The Buddha is not knowing. Um, that if, if you are like a teacup that's empty, only then can you receive tea. So I'm sort of saying, be confused, or maybe not confused. Be mystified and dwell in that mystery. That's what I'm trying to do with these. Yeah, it's very interesting. It feels to me like a, a big leap passed in the same direction of the the poems like separation where you have um you know the same word repeated so many times from different angles and different uses like separation is and that where it starts to sort of feel strange even though it's so familiar it sort of makes the familiar strange and then this goes even farther because it starts strange and makes it even like more strange than strange and it kind of pushes that idea of just sound being sound as far as it can go almost so i, I find it really fascinating so I think that's true. If you've ever 
done this as a kid, you pick a word and just say it, say it over and over again, a hundred times, and it it loses its meaning. And you sort of have to consciously think about the word to have it regain its meaning. Um, and I think that's part of the process that goes on with these poems. So you see it over and over again, you sort of gloss over it. But if you if you slow down and think, okay, here's another example. Hydrogen jukebox. Your snoring wakes my consciousness. <laughs> Not wakes me, wakes my consciousness. So it's conceptual. And I think that plays into the conceptuality of whatever a hydrogen jukebox is. Um, you know, put your money in a jukebox and get this kind of hydrogen and that kind of hydrogen. Have favorites? Get sick of hearing one. Can you listen to one over and over again? Whatever, you know, wherever it takes you. Um, it, it's sort of throwing you off the cliff. And, you know, I think Robert Bly said this, good poem throws you off a cliff and it sprouts wings before it crashes to the rocks below or something like that. Um, and I'm just throwing you off the cliff with these poems. Fly or not, however you wish. <laughs> well, that's uh, the one more thing I wanted to um, talk about. It's just the sense of um, because haiku are so sort of concise, and there's a certain mode of being and a certain way of doing it. How do you manage to do it for so long without sort of it to feel stale? You know, about sort of get like I get how this works. I you know, do you ever lose that sense of like? of freshness and, and how do you maintain it over the course of writing these short poems? And, and I think that's an example with the hydrogen jukebox, but, uh, but, but can you talk a little about that? Yeah. Um, so I actually have an essay about this and it's basically speaks of trying to maintain a sense of wonder. I, I quote Rachel Carson who said, if I, if I could grant one wish on all children everywhere is to maintain that sense of wonder all the way into adulthood. There, that taps into the idea of existential gratitude. Um, if if you have that, there's no end. I mean, I, I, it doesn't grow old for me. Um, and I recognize that it might for others, so fine. Um, but to me, okay, in my hands right now, I'm holding a pen. And I can take the cap off or whatever. Or let's say it's a pen that had a clicker. I could write about it with a clicker, the sound it makes. That wonderful in a small way mm -hmm. you know the, the small wonders of life I mean, there's no end to them um i mean you can write about big wonders too but um i don't know it's it's sort of a haiku is a celebration of the ordinary makes the extraordinary makes it extraordinary i think um pays attention to something we all know but we forget that we know and haiku are reminders of what we what we easily forget mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's what sustains me. Um, um, just to maintain a sense of wonder, and it sort of feeds on itself. By writing haiku, I feed that sense of wonder. And by having a sense of wonder, I feed on haiku, constantly paying attention and being astonished and writing about it. Um, uh, can't help myself. And what is your process like? Do you write, do you sit down to write every day? Do you have, do you just, are you noticing throughout the day and, and working on making notes and little haiku I, then? I should be so virtuous. <laughs> um, so, no. Um, I mean, I've had times where I've you know, made a pact with myself to write at least one haiku a day for an entire year. 
I've done that a few times. Or for National Haiku Writing Month, which is February, shortest month for the shortest genre of poetry. So we're right now in the middle of it. The goal is to write at least one haiku a day. And uh, many, there's a few thousand people on the Facebook page. Um, not all of them are doing it, but uh, quite a few are posting every day, and it's great. Um, and um, that is a habit that I think many people follow. I've I've written enough that I I I don't necessarily do that quite so devotedly anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't limit myself to just inspiration and you know epiphany. Um, sometimes an idea comes to me, and I, an example. This is long ago. I remember someone saying, you should never begin a haiku with a preposition. <laughs> so for a whole month, all of my haiku began with prepositions. Because I was trying to prove that rule, either right or wrong. And I proved that it's sort of dumb as a rule. Sometimes it can be perfectly fine to start a haiku with a preposition. You know, it depends on the poem. Some failed, some didn't. And so I, I learned something from doing that. So in that case, I had a goal just to write a lot of haiku starting with prepositions. Um, you could give yourself an artificial goal, like write haiku using only one-syllable words. Uh, I don't know. It's just just something crazy and silly to do, provided you hit the other targets. Um, uh, I'm going to look at my most recent haiku and read it to you. Looking, looking at my little notebook here. Backwoods walk. The deer carcass starts our conversation. Hmm. And my original draft here said stops our conversation. And I I like starts better because it's, it implies that you weren't talking and now you are. Uh, and what kind of comfortable relationship was this? You didn't need to talk. Or what was the tension in the relationship? that caused you not to talk. Hmm. You know, it's open-ended in that sense. So backwards walk, got a setting. No seasonal word in this, but for me it feels like autumn. The deer carcass starts our conversation. So there you go. I mean, that. Um, I don't even remember what inspired this, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this is most most recent. Finished, or not finished, but full haiku, mm-hmm. as opposed to no, uh, you know, jottings. Yeah, well, that's great for the last, last one in the book. I love that. Um, before you go, I, we'll, we'll do one more poem, but uh, if people want to get into um, National Haiku Writing Month and want to participate, how would they go about doing that? Would they just join the Facebook group and share haiku there, or is there yeah. some kind of process to it? So there, uh, National Haiku Writing Month has a website, Nahai Rimo, um, N-A-H-A-I-W-R-I-M-O.com. And that same word is the name of the Facebook group. Um, so you can, if you're on Facebook, log in. Um, there are daily prompts, and uh, prompts actually go year round. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, um, we have the community just loves having the prompts year round. So I have guest prompters every month, but I do it in February. And this month, our, our, our prompts are times of day. So I think the most recent prompt was brunch. I think that's today. Today's prompt, brunch. Mm-hmm. Um, you can predict some of the uh, earlier and later ones. So you, you can you can also just write for yourself. Just write one haiku a day, whether you post on the Facebook page or not, or elsewhere, or 
know, use the Nahai Rimo hashtag on Instagram or whatever, Twitter. Um, it's up to you. Or don't follow the prompts at all. Just write for yourself. Any of that is fine. Just, just, and you can catch up. It's already what it is, sixth of February here, so you can catch up for a few days. That's that's fine too. Um, but if you write at least one haiku a day, get into that haiku habit. Um, it can become addictive, and uh, uh, go for it. And I should also say there, there are people who share on various Facebook pages for haiku. Where they're they're seeking feedback. You know, how can I write this better? What are what are my problems here? Whatever, and that's fine. But I know some people also write just to share, just to record their lives. They don't want feedback. They don't want a figure wagging at them saying, "You forgot your kigo." Um, whatever. You know, just please yourself. There are many stances for haiku. It can be therapeutic for some people. You like a diary entry for others, literary for others. Whatever your motive is, a mindfulness practice for some people, any of those stances can work. And uh, if you get into the haiku habit, uh, you may find some of those stances evolving for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. Well, I hope people do participate. It's, a, it's just a lot of fun. It's a great community. If anybody's thinking about being more active in the haiku community, I definitely recommend it because it's just great people appreciating you know, the joy of life, really. Um, but let's uh, we're out of time. I know you have a, another event to go to. Do you want to do one last poem before you leave? Okay, so I did have four in mind, but I'm going to end with this one. It's called Canticle. Not a haiku. Canticle. I can't take it. I can't cure cancer. Can't lick my elbow. Can't lose weight. I can't run a marathon, let alone an Ironman. I can't act. I can't climb mountains. I can't fly. I can't break dance or dance anything. I can't afford a trip around the world. I can't stop stop hiccups. I can't cook. I can't sing. I can't do calculus. I can't win the lottery. I can't speak Japanese. I can't play guitar. I can't pick a lock. I can't be on time. I can't break down a door. I can't give birth. I can't be a morning person. I can't be disciplined. I can't listen enough. I can't explain the origin of the universe. I can't remember my passwords. I can't obey speed limits. I can't kick bad habits. I can't stop aging. I can't whistle. I can't tickle myself. I can't believe six impossible things before breakfast. I can't recant. I can't vote Republican. I can't remember names. I can't do a hundred push-ups. I can't save the world. I can't save the neighborhood. I can't eat meat. I can't walk a tightrope. I can't hula hoop. I can't wear plaid with stripes. I can't do smoke or do drugs. I can't get a tattoo. I can't shoot a gun. I can't poke a bear with a stick. I can't star on Broadway. I can't be an astronaut. I can't keep resolutions. I can't declutter. I can't read War and Peace. I can't effing swear. I can't act my age. I can't join the circus. I can't wear a kilt. I can't kill. I can't gamble. I can't rap. I can't give up pasta, or cheese, or chocolate. I can't stop reading. And thanks to folks like Tim Green, Rattle, I can't stop writing. Uh, that's great. I was hoping you'd end on that one. A great poem. I love the the reading of it too. Canticle. Excellent title. Michael, uh, thanks so much for being a guest. It's been great talking to you. I think a lot of people did learn a lot. Um, hopefully we'll pick up the haiku bug and uh, some people that were uh, ready to, to burst out. Uh, but, but thanks for being a guest. It's been as fun as I thought it would be. 
Thank you. Uh, this, is, this has been great fun. We didn't get to a few poems, but I, I love the fact that we could talk about Haiku, and I hope uh, that commentary was useful to people. Uh, for more about that, I invite people to visit my grayscuts.com site. There's a lot of essays and poems and uh, book reviews and so on. Um, more haiku than you can shake a stick at. <laughs> yeah, when, when, when you say uh, there's a lot, that's an understatement of the year. There's so much content, it's hard to even fish through it all. There's so much there to learn. And, uh, and you know, everything we've talked about is, is sort of in-depth in essay form, plus so much, so many examples of everything. Uh, but, but thanks for all you do, Michael. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yep, take care. That was Michael Dylan Welch. And again, his website is uh, graceguts.com. That's grace like the word, and then guts like the word. It comes from a, uh, is it a Ginsburg quote, I think? Or no, uh, E.E. E. Cummings. E. Cummings. E.E. Cummings, yep. yeah. So, um, yeah, graceguts.com. Tune in, uh, check that out if you would. And now uh, we're going to go to open lines in just a minute. I forgot to tell everybody that we do have an open lines at the end of the show, so sit tight right where you are. If you would like to share a poem, uh, only if you would like to share a poem, though, um, I will put on the screen the instructions. And uh, what you do is email the poem right now to open mic. That's open M-I-C at rattle.com. And then we can show the poem on the screen if you email it there, just like we were showing things with uh, Michael. Although, actually, he was screen viewing. I just show it myself, so you don't have to worry about it. Just have the poem with you when you read it. But uh, email your poem to open mic, open M-I-C at rattle.com, and then find the Zoom link. I'm about to paste it into the chat windows on Facebook and Twitter. So, uh, Facebook and YouTube, I should say. So, um, here we go. We will post in these things. Only come over if you want to share a poem. Uh, when it gets to be your turn, uh, read your poem, and then you can come back to the, the stream so you can watch along. It's a little more pleasurable experience watching on YouTube or Facebook or whatever. But uh, pop on the Zoom if you'd like to share a poem. And uh, I will be just back in just a moment with those open lines. So, uh, see you in a minute. And we're back. Thanks for waiting around. Uh, like I said, the uh, the open lines are available now. Find those links if you'd like to join us. We have uh, 14 people on the call right now, so it's going to definitely be a one-poem limit. And, uh, you know, one poem, try to be like one page-ish. If it goes on to the second page, that's fine too. But don't uh, get too long because we want to get to everybody before I have to leave in about an hour. Um, but the you, they could be poems about current events. They can be poems about uh, the prompt for this week. Um, or they can be poems that you published recently and are proud of and want to share. And then we can show off the journal, too, where it was published. So that's always fun. Uh, the prompt for this week was uh, inspired by last week's guest, who has uh, some questions, some poems that are prose poems answering a question um, from some of her friends. That was uh, Nicole Davis. And uh, so the prompt for this week was this, if anybody would like to do that. Uh, the prompt was... Um, go to Quora.com, answer one of the questions on the homepage incorrectly as a prose poem or hyphen. Uh, bonus points if you post it there. I don't expect anybody actually did, but I don't know. If you did, that's kind of fun too. And um, so I apologize. I didn't realize you had to sign up for Quora. I hadn't been there in, in years, and I didn't realize that you couldn't see the homepage unless you sign up. So sorry if anybody signed up for something and you didn't, didn't want to because uh, I didn't realize that that was the case. They switched. I haven't looked at it in 10 years probably. But anyway... If you did sign up, you got some questions there. And this was my question. Um, how did the Greeks make their temples so symmetrical? And that was an actual question. And there was an actual answer, but this is not the answer. But we'll see how it goes. How did the Greeks make their temples so symmetrical? In those ancient days, the air was different. This was before the smog of SUVs and houses with chimneys. The air wasn't air, but atmosphere, which is the Greek phrase for atomic balls of light. 
Imagine a sea of cellophane bottle caps. That was the sky, all of it hanging in the hum of its own particulate purity. Most birds back then didn't fly, but would bounce on their bellies from atmosphere to atmosphere. See the entry, penguins. It would have looked like a video game overhead if the Greeks knew to call it that. But games weren't invented until the Olympics, and video much later. Legends say it was Icarus who shot the first bird in the belly with an arrow, but it was probably Archimedes. Either way, the Greeks learned what we know today, that a dead bird on a ball drops a perfectly straight shadow straight from the sky. The Greeks used pencils to trace these lines for their temples. This also is the origin of the word architect. And then the haiku at the end, bounding into the ball pit, seabirds. So that is my hyben. Uh, how did the Greeks make their temples so symmetrical? So if you're ever wondering how, that's, that's apparently how. Um, and we'll go in the order of people have, have appeared. And uh, Carla Schwartz is first. Hey, uh, Carla. Yeah, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. What a, what a night. Really good interview. Thank you. And um, I loved your poem there. Um, oh, thanks. Very, very inventive. Mine wasn't so inventive. And maybe, I don't know, maybe I have logged into Quora or I was either I had some old, you know, credentials for Quora or... Yeah, that's the thing. They keep your credentials forever. So that's why I didn't realize you, you needed an account because apparently when I went there, I was already logged in too, even though I hadn't been there in 10 years. So, right, right, so they right. remember you though at Quora. So I don't know if you have any uh, old tax documents you need to ask Quora, I guess. Um Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so so okay. what do you got? What do you got for us? I have a prompt poem, uh, and my question that I got from there was: Is OpenSea the best platform for NFTs? Interesting. Okay. <laughs> and um, so this is it. I never like to divulge private information, although when I free my poetry. I feel like it's no longer personal, but a gift to my readers. I could not create an NFT without first buying cryptocurrency. I don't understand the landscape. One place for the money, one for the non-fungible collections. Such is the open sea. There are many platforms and each one asks for a piece of me, proof of my identi identity. I've tried to dive in. I don't know who I am that I can't buy cryptocurrency. Open sea, dead to me, failed identity. <laughs> that is funny. Thanks so much for sharing that, Carla. And it is. I know you've tried your hand at the at the uh, NFT poems, and we have that issue coming up. That is the hard thing is is getting through the actual tech stuff um, in order to actually do it. it it's a it's a real barrier um, to what is an otherwise really interesting you know concept and a useful thing. Right. So in this, I try to take the metaphor of what OpenSea might mean and mm -hmm. the, <laughs> put that all together. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, very cool. Thanks, Carl. Always a pleasure. Yeah. And that was uh, Carla Shorts was, is OpenSea the best platform for NFTs? Uh, let's go next to, uh, speaking of NFTs, let's go to Katie Dozier, who is uh, a fan of F NFTs I know. Oh, you're on mute, Katie. You got to unmute. I didn't accept the request <laughs> to unmute. I decided no, to didn't. stay muted. 
This is such a great show tonight. I love the discussion about wonder and curiosity. And I've been really into haiku lately. And I think that that really pinpointed why to me was the gratitude inherent in it. So now I want to go write a million haiku. Yeah, right that's now. the thing. I never I never thought of it that way. But one, as soon as you said it, I was like, oh, <laughs> so that, that yeah. is. You know, that <laughs> really too. is why. Yeah. So it's funny because the prompt poem, I love Carla Schwartz's prompt poem because she mentioned NFTs and I was feeling kind of silly for having NFTs in mind, but I feel like Carla and I basically planned this without talking. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I have this up. So you actually posted it. You actually you minted it as an NFT and then you posted it on Quora. <laughs> so yeah, here, I'll put it on the screen, but this is an actual Quora. You know, if you want to know what, uh, will eventually replace physical art form. What else can it be used for? Um, <laughs> you'll find the answer here in Katie's answer. And then yeah. over on object, here is the poem. So uh, here we go. Whenever you're ready. Do you want to say anything more about it? It has like NFT specific jargon, but I'm hoping that the images are interesting enough that if you don't totally understand all the weird words, it's at least entertaining for you. If not, I'm sorry. At least it's a high bond. What can I say? Okay. Well, let's hear it. <laughs> okay. We're still early, friends. Will NFT eventually replace physical art form? What else can it be used for? Incorrectly pluralized, well-intentioned Quora question. You can knit a tea cozy out of NFT or toss a ball to NFT. Better yet, carve a log out of NFT to farm metaverse mushrooms and fungible fungi in such a way you can find yourself between blockchain candles, consuming NFT on a red checkered tablecloth spread out over neon grass, battling digital ants for the scattered crumbs of rainbow pixels. Please ignore Grizzly NFT, asking to be poked on the swing set behind us. He's just fishing for your wallet again. Or NFT could be a pet that sheds too much, glitchy barks walking in tokenized parks. The way things are headed, NFT may even mint me. Autumn portrait, nature's provenance rises every fall. Oh, that is great. Excellent. Hi, Ben. Uh, we're still Thank early you. friends. <laughs> and I, I just love the idea that uh, people are going to actually find that on Quora and then uh, <laughs> and find their way to it. And you also mentioned the Rattlecast here. So uh, we get the plug as well if they do. So thanks for doing that, Katie. And thanks for sharing it. Yeah, I think Quora's going to find a way to log me out after reading this response. <laughs> Maybe. We'll see. It could be. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. Have okay. a good night. Yep. You too. Bye. Bye. It was uh, Katie Dozier with uh, We're Still Early Friends. Um, let's go next to uh, Dick Westheimer. Hey, Tim. Hey, Dick. How are you doing tonight? Oh, good. That was great. Um, I have the good fortune of uh, being in a monthly haiku group that Michael shows up. Oh, about really? Half That's great. Yeah. So how is it online? I assume because we're in different it, areas. It yeah. is. It is. I can send you information about it. It's Mercantile Library of Cincinnati, so it's mostly local folks. But, you know, we we uh, we welcome haikuers from all over. Oh, very interesting. How long have you been doing that? Um, since the beginning of the pandemic. Ah, gotcha. Well, that's very cool. We used cool. to do it in person, and I couldn't make it on an ordinary basis. But once the, once the lockdown happened, I had some free time on my hand. <laughs> well, that's for sure. So, So what would you like to share? I think I'll do a uh, 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 Poets Respond poem, that uh, The Hidden Books Soon to be Censored Make Plans. Okay. And tell us what it's about while I put it up. Uh, sure. Uh, and one, one thing uh, while you're getting it is I did do the Quora thing, um, and I found Quora questions. There were a bunch of needy people on there. Oh, really? The, the weird yeah. thing for me, I must have like answered or clicked on a military question at some point. 
And so every single thing was until I had to, I had to go to like some group. I had to cheat and not do the homepage because everything was like, which tank had the most firepower in World War One? And I was like, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I could have, but I just didn't feel like going there. I don't know what my homepage says about the last time I was on it because the, the, the least needy question I could find is, what have you been complimented on most often? <laughs> that was that was that was the best of them. Um, so uh, this one um, was about in a, a couple counties in um, in Florida. The school superintendents interpreted the um, uh, DeSantis's uh, mm -hmm. restrictions on books as to saying any teacher should cover up their bookcase until the authorities, media folks come in and check out every book on their shelf. Oh, so, <laughs> so they emptied their bookshelves and a bunch of folks threw calf paper over it. And I just couldn't help imagining what went on behind that paper. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, let's hear it. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, um, the hidden books soon to be censored make plans. Under the cover of craft paper, the books consort. Talk of their plots and characters and some blotted out words and tell of kids who wept onto their pages, the others who laughed out loud, the ones who gaped in awe when a poem turned to elf and dust. There was that tear-stained drawing of a polar bear on an ice floe melting to the sea, and another, a mama doe lost to a hunter's gun. The books suspected they'd remain undisturbed in hiding for just a short time and visited quickly in their private space. Words and whole pages jumped down from their spines, crossed over the shelves, looked to find camaraderie among the chapters of others' tales and conspired to thwart the inspectors they'd heard were bound to take some of them away. Soon, one by one, they found refuge. Two married moms in one book snuck from their bindings to join a group of bears dancing in the woods. A wizard took his wand and went to stay with a little girl trying to find God. Harriet Tubman went underground again, took her deeds to a book of poems, Brother Eagle flew to find a wrinkle in the fabric of time. They each prepared for the day when the craft paper bandage would be torn off and the terrible light from the eyes of the censor selectors would burn into them. The words in their books whispered into the dreams of students who'd previously read their printed lines. They charmed them with knowledge of ancient bards who'd memorized and recited to whomever would listen. The children became like Homer and Sappho and Bilbo and his kind, reciting rhyme and hero tales to each other as they walked to and from school. The parents and teachers gathered round to learn the old ways from the young. The hauled-off books found each other again in dumpsters and storage lockers, said hosannas to the new breed of kids who kept their words alive. In the dark of their captivity, their letters, like runes, shimmered on their pages. Yeah, great poem, Dickon. That's a very imaginative and uh, one of those things that kind of writes itself once you have the idea that had a great flow to it. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, you're welcome. I, I wanted to say that all the books, The Two Married Moms, The Wizard with His Wand, Harriet Tubman, Brother Eagle, these were all books that are on the 
censored list. Yeah, it's amazing. The the just censorship everywhere. <laughs> it's a, a problem we're all dealing with in the age of information and you know, supposedly uh, you know, freedom free access to it. So so definitely an important topic. Yeah, yeah thanks, thanks for sharing that, Dick. Yeah. See and you. uh yeah, the weird thing too is uh yeah, we have a lot of subscriptions. I shouldn't say this out loud. We have a lot of subscriptions that, uh, for Rattle at high schools. <laughs> and there's uh, stuff in there that if, uh, if, if certain people knew about, that might be uh, behind that blanket as well. <laughs> so hopefully, I think it's probably like 50 high schools maybe that subscribe to Rattle. Uh, uh, Nate Jacob is next. Hey. Hey, Nate. Yeah, how are you doing today? I'm surviving. Yeah, excellent. I heard you're publishing poems in newspapers. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah, on a whim, I sent one in, and the uh, the tiny local paper went ahead and put it out there. So. Yeah, I just thought that was a great idea because you know people like we have one that's like covers the tri community. They call it here. It's got like a circulation uh-huh. of like bigger than most literary magazines, you know. Uh-huh. And so why not? I mean, they're desperate for content, and um, uh-huh. they'll, they'll you know it's a great thing, a great place to put poetry. I thought it was a great idea. Well, my wife made me uh, call around to some friends and ask for their copies of the paper, uh-huh. and not a single one had read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe the bird cage, uh, you, know, you know. Oh well, the bottom. Far for the floor. Yeah, <laughs> it's still it's a great idea. I love it. So, uh, so what do you got to share though today? Uh, I did a Quora poem. Okay, and I signed up for Quora, even though it made me nervous. <laughs> Sorry, I apologize. <laughs> Fine. So far, it's been fine. Uh, the question I uh, chose was, uh, which is correct? I feel attacked or I felt attacked. <laughs> and uh, I agree with Dick. There's a lot of needy people asking a lot of silly questions on Quora. <laughs> there definitely are. So I'm, I'm trying to find it. So let's see. You emailed it to me? I did. <laughs> hey, good news. It turns out. I never pressed send. There you go. Well, that would explain it. I was I looked in the mine. spam and thought maybe you were spam, but no. So what it's was spam your... worthy? <laughs> yeah, I doubt that. So what do you have? Uh, what do you have? What was your core question? Which is correct? I feel attacked or I felt attacked. <laughs> Interesting. And, uh, yeah, I guess I see uh, Dick's point with the needy people maybe on Quora. <laughs> there's, that's there's a subtle distinction between the two. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Some people need to learn to Google. <laughs> so, uh, all right, let me read it. Which is correct? I feel attacked or I felt attacked. To feel anything at all in this world of removal is a gift bestowed upon you by God. This upheaval, as you call it, landed square where you were dealt it. Never mind if past or present, if it left you feel if you if it left you badly welted. Someone better say they're sorry. They were sorry, or they are sorry for the senseless violence from a joke that went too far. No, best to let it go, my friend. There's no bomb here to, to disarm. There was no attack intended. No one meant you any harm. If you do not feel you're wounded, then you're not and cannot be. Go on with your life from here, son. Read the Stoics, friend. You'll see. Excellent. So. Yeah, great. Gary used the rhyme. We don't see a lot, whole lot of that, Nate. I always appreciate it. That was a uh, yeah, good answer to the question, too. <laughs> I did not post it. <laughs> well, maybe you should. But I wonder if, if you posted it like as prose, would anybody notice the rhyme in the in the meter there? I wonder. Maybe I'll post that as a question. Oh, that's a great. Yeah, we got We're on a roll, and maybe somebody can answer your question with another yeah. another poem. Beautiful. Wow. Yeah, my mind just blew. But thanks, Nate. <laughs> Always great talking thanks to you. A lot. Great yeah. Show. Yep. Take care. 
Is that Nate Jacob with that, which is correct. I feel attacked or I felt attacked. Uh, next up, let's go to Sharon Ferrante, our um, resident short poems expert, who uh, probably liked the show today. I am you? Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Hey, Sharon, how you doing? Okay, how are you? I'm great. It's been a fun show. I'm looking forward to seeing what you have yeah. for us. Oh, my God. You know I love Michael. Mm-hmm. I thank you so much for that interview. Yeah. Yeah, it was just a pleasure. Uh, I, know, I have a... I have a oh. I have a you know a, a haiku poet every you know six months or so is my my plan so it was time and then and Michael actually well, you know, mentioned hey it's nano nano po hi whatever month yeah, and so haiku <laughs> month exactly yeah, you know yeah. my heart is beating yeah mm-hmm. you know I love haiku yeah um I wanted to do a prompt poem. But when I went on Quora, I did want to sign it. Uh-huh. And, I, and, and there was some questions on the side. And I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. There was some weird stuff. Uh-huh. So I'm like, you know what? I, I've been wanting to write this poem. So I did I did do a hyphen. Okay. Um, uh, Something I've been wanting to write. But I didn't do it on a question. Okay. Thus here. Before your book. For Pico Iyer, I was outside petting a, arm, a baby armadillo. Finally, I picked it up, your book, not the armadillo. You were staying in a cabin with Leonard Cohen. He wanted to teach you about stillness, giving you an adventure in going nowhere. A traveling writer being still letting everything go. I tried it. I sat in stillness, watched a leaf roll across my sandy road. But it wasn't a leaf at all. Remember the armadillo in a cabin with nowhere to go. I draw a door. Oh, that was just wonderful. I love that. Thanks for sharing that, Sharon. Thanks so much. Yeah, loved yeah. it. Yeah, Thanks. really great use of the hyphen. I love the haiku, and then the, the the you know beginning part is a poem in itself. That's great. Well, I you know I freak out when I got to use punctuation. <laughs> you know, like, oh, no. oh my god, write another hyphen. Got to figure out the punctuation. I don't normally write like that. Yeah, well, you work it's only out. like the second one. I've ever- well, I think I think Michael would say you could do whatever you want. If you wanted to have the prose part, have no punctuation. I think as long as it worked, it would work. But uh, but you did good. So thanks for sharing thank that. Thank, <laughs> okay. thank you so much. Yep. Good night. Yeah, Sharon Franzi with uh, Before Your Book. Next up is Audrey Friedman. Hello, everybody. He was fantastic. Ah, thanks. Glad you liked him. It was such a great choice of guest. Okay, I did the Quora one. Uh-huh. Uh, what is the strangest, most unexpected thing the surgeon was asked that you discovered inside a patient? Ooh, that's a dark one. <laughs> Mine all come through medical. I don't know why. I saw, the, I saw through the anesthesia haze, a neat slice into my abdomen, Everything in the surgical suite abruptly went still. It's a woman in her womb, an older lady, salt and pepper hair, 
lacquered red nails and a scowl. Instantly, I knew the horror of the moment. I carried my mother, long deceased. Would I ever be without her, without the taunting, the haunting? She could never get enough of me, her only child. So she took up residence inside me, probably to make sure she'd never be forgotten, never be alone. But she never foresaw the hysterectomy. Locusts gorge on grain. Untampered greed spores, spawns famine. Hungry harbingers. Oh, that was great, too. Yeah, I did not see that turn coming. Uh, very, very cool poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Audrey. Thank you. Thanks for the inspiration. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm glad we could. These are fun poems everybody's sharing. I appreciate it. Um, next up, I think Emily Kane. Uh, Emily, are you a first time caller? Have you been on before? Hi. Um, I have not been on before. Um, I'm not even sure how I got here. <laughs> well, but it's great. I'm enjoy, so glad um, you find it. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah. I, I enjoyed Michael's talk. I was there for that. And I'm really more of a painter than a writer, uh-huh. but he's gotten me writing haiku. So I, I go to um, the Commencement Bay Haiku group and also haiku northwest so i just sent one quick one um floating transcontinental runaway spy balloon takeout menu oh that's very cool floating transcontinental and it would be a haiku except i put an exclamation point at the bottom and that's four lines so it's a short (laughs) poem but it's had so many permutations and ended up with this version, which yeah. I'll take Saturday to the Haiku Northwest and let them rip it up and redo it. And it's it's really fun. It's a nice group. That sounds like <clears> how meeting Saturday from uh-huh. one to four. Very cool. How long have you been participating in that? Um, oh, a little over two years, mm-hmm. I'd say. Yeah, yeah. Well, I found it cool. through the Puget Sound Sumi art, Sumi painters. Uh-huh. We have a little group that does haiga, which is haiku with an illustration, whether it's a painting or a photograph. Mm-hmm. Um, haiga, H-A-I-G-A. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun to be here. Yeah, well, I hope you come you back again. You know, haiku is welcome anytime. Haiga too, so feel free to join us anytime and you like. you guys meet Mondays? It is Mondays um, in, uh, on the West Coast, it would be 5 to about 7.30. Mm-hmm. every monday every monday yep new guest every oh, monday okay. yeah okay well see you again <laughs> okay cool yeah thanks for joining us that was emily kane with a haiku a floating transcontinental let's go uh to the f- two first-time callers next to make sure we uh get them in so christine bissonette is here hi christine hi yeah thanks so much for joining us so uh, first of all where are you calling from I'm calling from Vancouver, BC in Canada. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, what do you have that you'd like to share? Uh, I have a poem. It's not in, in response to the prompt, but uh-huh. it's a poem I wrote recently for my mother. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to say about it or do you want to jump right in? Um, I think I'll just jump right in. Okay, go ahead. It's, it's up for everybody at home. You've got to read your own copy. If belief were made of wind, slowly she began to build a nest out of the usual things. Inside, tumble the trio of children and a dull spindle with no thread. The landing was much softer than she feared, but still she lifted each arm, looking for bruises. Later, we blocked out the chill, 
made a home, peeled paper off the walls and hung each strand from our biceps like wings. She, our mother, dreamed, which is sometimes all there is to do. We were not waiting for the spell to be broken. Mother had stopped plucking her feathers, believing she would never fly. She practiced unfurling her petals and bones, learned to demand from the world what was needed. When the wind had softened into a breeze she could hold in her belly, seeds from the field maple spiraled and twirled, we found ourselves held. Together we spun what was empty into roots and burrowed as the walls cracked and our mother, oh, our mother began to bloom. Oh, very cool, especially contrasting uh, Lucy's poem just now, too. Um, If belief were made of wind, great reading of it, too. Thanks so much for sharing that, Christine. Thank you. Yeah, I hope you can join again uh, every Monday, like uh, like we told Emily. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, thanks for being here. Thank you. Cool, thank you. It was uh, Emily Bissonette with uh, If Belief Were Made of Wind. Um, And let's go to um, um, Sangeeta Kalarikal, who uh, another first-time caller. Hi, Tim. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, how are you doing? Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Minnesota. Just uh, recovering from a cough. So I, I think I, I think like 90 percent. Yes, it's been rough, a rough winter, I think, for sure. Yeah, it sure has. Uh, um, they, lo- lovely. Very nice. It's always great to hear Mr. Haiku. Super, yeah. Definitely That's is. Yeah, well, I'm so glad you here. So, what is, what do you have that you'd like to share? So, I had I had sent you two points, but mm-hmm. I'll read just one because I think uh, it were lacking time. Uh, and maybe I should read uh, my first hybrid, uh, which I have first work, uh, you know, in the Haikaist a tradition, which got published. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was uh, a year ago. Um, foreboding winter. It's a high boom. Foreboding winter. Gusts are picking up pace. Leaves ride the waves. A maple red, a birch gold. Harbingers of what is to come. The pink hydrangea I planted in your memory sways in the breeze. In full flower this year, they are now all shades of daft brown. Your voice rings softly in my mind. They'll prepare to rest soon. The cycle to continue next year. You never even saw the bush. I stand still at the edge of the garden. That particular shade of pink has since transformed into a deep shade of sorrow. The wind blows colder. Yet another year goes by. Hospice bed. She writes her own obituary. Oh, very touching. Yeah, great haiku at the end of that, that hymen. Thanks so much for sharing that. Thank you. Yeah, so glad you could be here. Hope you can come again, too. Yeah, I will. Thank okay, you. Great. Yep, take care. Yeah, that was a Foreboding Winter um, by um, Sangeeta Kalarikal. So thanks so much. That was great. Uh, great poems all around from this uh, Open Lines tonight. Uh, let's see. Who do we have left? Let's finish out the Zoom with Brian. Okay. Hey, thanks, Brian. Tim. Yeah, good to see you. Thanks. Good to see you. So um, I'm feeling like I should have more gratitude and wonder because I tried two uh, high bonus prom poems and they both came out like less like a finger pointing at the moon and more like a political middle finger. Um, <laughs> well, so, I guess it's one, one kind of I thing. Let me do something wrong, but this is what it is. Okay. <laughs> um, it's the Conqueror's Air fantasy. Um, in an update to a current question, a Quora user will ask this. If William the Conqueror had direct descendants to the throne in 2031, where would they be in line? 
In line for warmed over hamburger helper at Tallahassee Federal Pen, a hulk of a man with a broken crust of orange hair curses his enemies. Embarrassed, killers avert their eyes rather than bowing to the orange man, though he might be a descendant of William and of everyone who had children in Europe in the 11th century, collapsed pedigrees being what they are. Maybe he's related to William of Orange, too. We know for sure he is a descendant of the conqueror, that thrusting spirit which moves a man to seize a king's death or a country's confusion as his shot. One harrowed the north, the other would have sundered the south from the north. William's triumphs became Harold's tragedy. Donald's campaigns become his own farce. Iron rusts. <clears throat> Dawn runs to dusk. Trump card turns to deuce. <laughs> That's a, a funny haiku. I, th- I think I would call that a uh, senru. Yes, I think that's fair. Yes, a sun bun, maybe. <laughs> thanks for, yeah, thanks for sharing that. Always a pleasure, Brian. And uh, yeah, great to see you. And thanks for waiting for the, for the open lines. It was Brian O'Sullivan with uh, the Conqueror's Hair, a fantasy. Um, so these are fun Quora prompts. Hey, thanks everybody for sharing those. Uh, it is past time. So if anybody just emailed poems in and couldn't join the Zoom, I'm not going to be able to read your uh, your contributions tonight, unfortunately. Um, we just have, uh, you know, there's just too much open lines to get through, and I gotta, I gotta eat my lasagna at some point. So, um, but, but thanks everybody who sent poems. I'm glad they were helpful. Uh, the prompt was working. Um, now, the really quickly, the Saiku for this week. <clears throat> so this comes from a uh, article from where is this article from? Um, the University of Innsbruck, and what they've done. And let me put this on the screen for those still watching on YouTube, anyway. Um, this uh, right here. Um, one second there, there. So it's always too big. But uh, entangled atoms across the Innsbruck quantum network. And so what they did is they had uh, atoms entangled for the use of quantum, or, or ions, I should say, entangled for a quantum computer network. And it stretched 230 meters across two different labs in this place. And I don't really understand. I don't understand how quantum... Uh, computers work, how you can network that. It really does not make a lot of sense to me based on the way that, that quantum entanglement works. I don't know how, but anyway. But they, they managed to do this and entangle two ions that far apart. And uh, so kudos to them. And we'll see if they can actually build a future quantum network using this technology. I mean, they use photons to to disentangle the atoms, but then how do they re how do they get the, the superposition back again? I don't understand. I'll have to learn someday. But um, anyway, this was a Saiku that that inspired right here. And uh, talk about the season word. The season word is, uh, of course, not winter like most of us are in right now. But all you listeners in Australia might appreciate this. So uh, here is the Saiku for today. Right about here. Summer night, all of the sheets in town entangled. Summer night, all of the sheets in town entangled. That is your Saiku for the day, and that is the show for today. Next week's prompt for Rattlecast Worm 181 is going to be right here. You can kind of imagine what the prompt might be. Um, write a linked haiku sequence in which each haiku includes a line from the previous haiku. So I was hoping to figure out what you would call that, because it's not a... It's not a renku because a renku has like a haiku and then two two lines and then they go back and forth like that. It's not a renge. I'm not sure, but but whatever it is, let's do a linked haiku, kind of like um, 
Um, I think uh, the the hydrogen jukebox would count of Michael's because that has the same phrase. You don't have to be the same phrase over and over again, but have have some kind of link between haiku and see how long you can keep it going. That is the prompt for next week. We'll work on some haiku. I thought that'd be a good way to get us to write a few at least. Um, and that is going to be the prompt. So hope you enjoy that. Now, next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be, who's it going to be? Oh, it's Kwame Dawes. So, of course, Kwame Dawes is known as maybe one of the busiest men in poetry. He's a... Uh, ran the um, American Life and Poetry column. He's the editor of Prairie Schooner. He's a distinguished professor at the University of Nebraska. He writes books like crazy. He's got the African Poetry Book Fund he runs. Um, his most recent book is um, Unhistory, which are poems written back and forth a cycle with him and John Kinsella. So John's not going to be here, but Kwame's going to be here reading some of those poems, some poems from Rattle will Talk Poetry, and all the things he does. He does so much. That's going to be Rattlecast number 181, the regular time, Monday, February 13th at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great weekend in the meantime, and I will talk to you later. Good night. Good night.